Can't buy me love. Probably should have played that before Christmas, huh? (laughs) Oh, well. So who are these people? Go on, shout it out. Brady Bunch. Right. Specifically, these are the grown-up Bradys. This is a still from the introduction to A Very Brady Christmas, which was a made-for-TV movie special that came out in 1988 when I was five years old. Yeah. (laughs) A Very Brady Christmas. When I was a kid, this was pretty much everything I wanted at the holidays. This big, bustling house full of people, all those siblings to play with, the kind of lightly complicated blended family dynamics that the Brady Bunch always represented. (laughs) They were this benevolently kind of messed up family that always stuck together, that had these minor trials and tribulations, like figuring out where everyone was going to sleep on Christmas Eve night. But they always made it work. There's a phrase that I've heard Reverend Ken use and a few other folks here in our congregation who are open about their recovery. It's usually some variant of this wording. Recovery really ruins my drinking. (laughs) Recovery really ruins my drinking. When we are aware, when we are conscious of what drives our behavior and our compulsions and our fantasies, then those means of escape that we rely on become not so appealing anymore. When we see them, they lose some of their power. Well, this year, mindfulness finally ruined my very Brady Christmas fantasy. (laughs) And I managed to keep it going for a really long time, I'll tell you. When I was a child, I used to beg my parents to go to my friend Kate's house for all the holidays, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. Kate was my best friend. We met when we were nine years old in the band. She was the youngest of four sisters, so you can imagine how much fun her house was at the holidays. They had exactly that busy, lightly complicated, blended family dynamic that I was looking for. And I went most holidays. After I woke up on Christmas morning with my parents, I would go over to Kate's house. And then, my ex-boyfriend's family, for about five years, I spent the holidays with them. I don't want to get into it here, but trust me, they were more than lightly complicated. (laughs) Cross-country family, lots of divorce. I want to write a book about them one day. They probably won't appreciate that, though. But this year, I went home to my family. My small, quiet family where there's no one else my age. I'm an only child. My mom's an only child. And instead of trying to create something that wasn't there, for the first time, I just tried to pay attention, to love all of the little moments we had together for exactly what they were. I think I need a few more years practice at this. But I want to do it. For maybe the first time, I really want to do it. I set an intention this holiday to really just try and be there. 
to help love grow from the seeds that are already planted in my life rather than always going out and looking for greener grass somewhere else. A few weeks ago, in an earlier message in our series, Small Flame, Big Light, Reverend Ken quoted the singer-songwriter Josh Ritter. He said, Every heart is a package tangled up in knots that someone else tied. Every heart is a package tangled up in knots that someone else tied. And at Christmas time, all those packages come home. They sit there under the tree, all those hearts wrapped up in pretty paper, knots tangled all around them. Your kid sister's heart, your dad's heart, the heart of your son who's growing up a little too fast, the heart of your sister-in-law who's on her fourth glass of wine, the heart of your uncle who's losing his memories day by day. All those hearts sit there tangled up under the tree and they bring joy and they bring worry and deep love and sometimes anger and disappointment. They bring complicated feelings. And then there are the hearts that aren't there, that aren't physically there maybe, but are still there. The heart of your grandmother who may be too ill to come home. The heart of the child that you lost. The heart of the loved one, whoever they are, who is distant or far away or maybe never, ever coming back. We have this image, it's kind of sold to us by the Christmas industrial complex, of catharsis on Christmas morning, right? That we'll come downstairs and we'll find all those hearts tangled up in knots under the tree, and one by one, the ends of the threads will be pulled, and all of our knots will come loose, and we'll just sit around basking in the glory of our alive, awakened hearts beating with pure Christmas morning love. There are lots of promises that are sold to us in the holiday season. And the commercial one that I just described in some ways isn't so different from the religious one. See, within the Christian tradition, the promise that's really at the heart of Christmas is the promise of the Incarnation. Incarnation is one of those fancy religious words. It really means God showing up. The Incarnation is God showing up in the world, here. Not up there in the sky, not out there somewhere else, but right where we are in this moment. The Quaker writer and activist Parker Palmer wrote an article for On Being, an NPR blog this week, called The Risk of Incarnation. He talks about growing up in the Methodist church as a child. And on Christmas Eve, the minister would talk about what was going on. He would talk about how on Christmas the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, Parker Palmer, being a little kid, says, I didn't quite understand the difference between the word, like any old word, and the word with a capital W. Right? The word in the Christian tradition with that capital W is a representation of God, of God coming down and being with us right where we are. But Parker Palmer says that as a little boy in that church, he remembers just being captivated by the idea that a word, that any word, something as immaterial and airy, he says, as a word could be turned into a body. This idea that a concept like love or truth or justice could become real. And not just real, but personified in a human being. Now he is writing from the perspective of a child. He's talking about when he was a kid. As a child, he had that natural gift that all children have, what the Zen Buddhists call beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is that creative and imaginative and fresh way of looking at things that as adults we think we understand, that as adults become covered over with cynicism or doubt, perhaps, as we age. And this got me thinking about my own beginner's mind, my own sense when I was a child of how I would have thought about words becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And I have to tell you, the first thing that came to mind was these women. These women right here. Yep. That's the Spice Girls. (laughs) Each an embodiment, right, of a particular concept. Those concepts being posh and sporty and baby and sexy. Scary Spice, of course, the only woman of color in the group is Scary Spice, but that's a topic for another message altogether. And then, of course, I started thinking about this next group of women. Show of hands, how many of us looked at our friend group when this show was on TV and decided who was Miranda and who was Carrie and who was Samantha? Yeah, beyond, yeah, okay, thank you. It's not limited to women. And no, I'm not going to tell you which one I was. It's definitely not happening. But there's this idea that we gravitate towards, this particular kind of magic that says that a quality of being, something so ephemeral and immaterial, can be turned into flesh and bone. And that's what the incarnation story is. It's a story that says that God's love, this limitless, undying love for humanity, God's love has been made real and material. It's something that we can touch and hear and taste and interact with even. Made into a human being, just like us. And the things that we do on Christmas morning, as commercial as they seem, reflect this promise. I realize that this year, how the practice of giving gifts to each other is really just a tiny reenactment of the incarnation. Think about what we do, right? We buy something or we make something and we wrap it up and we essentially give it to a person saying, here, this is my love and care for you. I've embodied it in this soda stream. It's what we do. Or in this phone that my teenager has been begging for. 
we know a lot of love and care goes into giving them that phone. Or in this tiny lopsided bowl that I made at Color Me Mine with the imprint of our little boy's hand in it. This is my love made material, made real. The Catholic contemplative father, Richard Rohr, writes a daily meditation. And a couple days ago, he talked about this feeling of when that child gives you their crooked, wobbly drawing. It's not the drawing that we want. There's no perfect drawing we get from a child, artistically speaking. What we want is that joy of seeing their pure desire to give of themselves. We know the love that's behind it. And that's what matters. That is what's meaningful. That's what pulls at that string around our hearts. Richard Rohr talks about how we so often think of what we have to give as inadequate and frail, as this imperfect human love when measured up against the capital L love, the idea, the fantasy of love that we have in our minds but an ephemeral fantasy of love is only worth so much. What makes love real is when it shows up, which is really just another way of saying that we incarnate love. We make love real for each other. I heard a story about this recently. It was a story from a participant in one of our Wellsprings 2.0 listening to our lives, small groups. And the woman who shared this story with our group very generously gave me permission to share it with all of you this morning. It was a story that came up during the eighth week of Wellsprings 2.0, which is the week that we talk about God. Yes, we give you seven weeks to warm up. We talk about different ideas of God. We talk about whether that word or that concept is even relevant or meaningful for us, whether it's important in our spiritual lives. And I have to tell you, this particular member of our group was the most skeptical about the G word. She really wasn't sure that it was right for her. And she was very quiet all night as we talked about the reading we'd done, as we went through all of our activities, she wasn't saying a word, and I was so curious. And so I asked her. Towards the end of our time together, I said, I have to ask you, you've been so quiet, what are you thinking about? What's on your mind, what's on your heart right now as we talk about all these readings, about all these different ideas about God? She didn't answer my question directly. Instead, she started to tell us a story. You see, this woman had spent her entire life working as an occupational therapist with young children who were severely disabled. And she said one day they brought a child to her, a little girl named Ruthie. Ruthie was one of the most challenged children that this woman had ever met and worked with. She had severe physical disabilities, but also mental and developmental disabilities. And her illness was actually 
such that she wasn't expected to live more than a few years. Her illness was actually such that she might die at any moment. Ruthie came to this woman for occupational therapy. And within just a few weeks of working with her, she said, I realized that there wasn't too much I could do with traditional methods. Ruthie's family was Orthodox Jewish. We've talked about this woman's discomfort with God. The father of Ruthie could not touch her when he met her because of their religious practice. But the mother would come in to pick Ruthie up. They developed a bond and a relationship, and finally, after these few weeks, she told Ruthie's mother, I would love to keep working with your daughter, but I've exhausted everything I know. I'm not sure what more I can do for her that will be useful to your family. And Ruthie's mother said, but you love her. She said, yes. And Ruthie's mother said, and it's all right with us if she dies with you. She kept working with Ruthie. And Ruthie did die when she was five, five years later. When Ruthie passed away, her family invited this woman to go and sit Shiva with the family. She was very uncomfortable with this idea, but she mentioned it to one of the doctors she worked with, and he said, you're going. So she went, and she remembers walking into the house and seeing all of these men with long beards and long coats and big hats, and she thought, I don't belong here. I'm going to find Ruthie's mother and pay my respects, give her a hug, and then I'm going to go. She said she found Ruthie's mom in a back room. She gave her a big hug. And her mother said, if I get everyone's attention for just a moment, will you tell them about Ruthie? Will you tell them what she was like? Sitting there in the room with our group, this woman said, I'm not sure that I believe in God or what I believe. But when I hear people at Wellsprings talk about God, I think about that. I think about my time with Ruthie. And then I think maybe I understand what they mean. I'm not sure that God means much of anything as an ephemeral idea. Even the biblical story of Christmas tells us that God only shows up when we show God to each other, when the shepherds come, when the wise men come. That's when we recognize what we have. That's the mark for the next holiday, actually, on the Christian calendar, Epiphany. This is when the story begins to take meaning. Maybe God is the source, maybe not. But we make that limitless, undying love visible by being it, by embodying that love for each other. Just this past Wednesday night, 
on Christmas Eve, both Reverend Ken and I read to you about another baby born and destined to lose his life before his time. We read from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And just 15 chapters later, Jesus is all grown up. And he's asked by the Pharisees about the coming of the kingdom of God. They ask him, what will this kingdom be like? How will we know it? This blessed, beloved community of love and peace. And Jesus' response is to say that we'll never reach it by counting days on a calendar or by saying, look over there or go out over there because it's already here. It's already here among us. In Luke 17, Jesus describes the kingdom actually as much like the moment that the sky lights up from a flash of lightning. The whole sky lit just for a split second from the electricity that's always there. The charge that's constantly here with us in the air. In that split second where we see the beloved community, where we see the kingdom, we are awake to it. It's made visible in a powerful way, in a dangerous way, one that might carry the very risk of death along with it. But for that split second, it leaves us completely awestruck with a clear vision of everything around us, despite the night. The kingdom is like an epiphany, showing how what we seek is already here. How if we want to know heaven on earth, we need only one conscious step and one conscious breath. And we need to be conscious together with each other. Every heart is a package tangled up in knots that someone else tied. Reverend Ken added to that quote, Every heart is a present, waiting to be unwrapped by someone else's love and grace. We can all be thread pullers, friends, tugging at the ends of those loose knots tied around our hearts. And we probably all have stories of the thread pullers who've shown up in our lives, maybe not the ones we expected. That's the story of what happens after Christmas. After the letdown, maybe, of the perfect promise. After the visions of a greener field somewhere else or a made-for-TV movie fantasy have finally lost their grip. Between the incarnation and the epiphany, we realize that amidst all of those imperfect circumstances, in our world, the deepest possible love is somehow both here and fully human. If only in brief, present, fiery skylit moments, still shining. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Holy Presence, God of our deepest hearts, yearnings. 
God, of our hearts that can feel so tangled and twisted. Help us to see that there are moments of joy, moments of unpredictability, (laughs) moments of true presence all around us. If we only choose to open our eyes, if we only choose to breathe consciously, if we only choose to look into the eyes of those we love and remember that this is love made real for us here right now. Amen.